This is a Reconstruction radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is The Great Tribulation by David Chilton. Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Copyright 1987 by Dominion Press. Publisher's Epilogue by Gary North And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Mark nine forty-seven through 50 The Great Tribulation is a book about God's judgment. It may not be the judgment that you had in mind when you bought it. Whatever kind of biblical events that you associate with the word judgment, or the words Great Tribulation, never forget, as you read this book, that these earthly judgments are nothing compared to the eternal judgment that Jesus said is coming at the end of time. They are earnests, down payments, on God's holy wrath in eternity. Actually, our use of language is misleading when we speak of God's judgment exclusively as punishment. In the Bible, judgment is twofold, blessing and cursing. We see this in the final judgment. At the final judgment, after the resurrection of all humanity, God will judge men. He judges between men, sheep to one side and goats to the other, Matthew twenty-five thirty-three. I hope there is no one reading this book who is so literalistic that he believes that Jesus was talking about literal sheep and literal goats. Literalism has its limits. The Bible is filled with symbols which you should bear in mind as you read this book. Jesus was talking about people, not animals. You and I will be there at that great division. That great final division leads to two different eternal states. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25, 34 and 41. There will be eternally blessed people and eternally cursed people. Each group goes to its respective everlasting resting place, though there is no rest for the wicked. In fact, the two places can be defined in terms of rest, ethical rest for those who live in God's kingdom forever, and zero ethical rest for those who live, exist, in the second death of the lake of fire. The second death is the ultimate and everlasting curse. It is living death, meaning spiritual death with the sensation of pain. The Bible speaks of the worst imaginable pain, fire, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Revelation twenty fourteen. This is not annihilation, as several cults teach. It is not oblivion. It is not non-existence. 
Those condemned to the lake of eternal fire would gladly exchange their everlasting bodies for mere oblivion. Oblivion would mean an escape from the everlasting agonies of God's curse, the longed-for silence of God. But God is not silent. Sinners in hell and later in the lake of fire are never given this opportunity to silence God. Sin has everlasting consequences. It is God's final judgment that will mark forever the blessed and the cursed, the living and the dead, the covenant keepers and the covenant breakers, the Christians and the non-Christians. Note that the Bible teaches that both the post-resurrection kingdom of God and the place of everlasting torment were created from the foundation of the world. The kingdom of God was created for redeemed people, while the lake of fire was created for the devil and his angels, though God opens it up for human covenant breakers. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. The lake of fire is marked by something called the worm. We do not know what that is, but we know what it isn't. It is not a fallen angel, for the fallen angels are rendered eternally impotent too. The worm is not human conscience, for there is no sense of voluntary submission before God and His law. Covenant breakers remain covenant breakers forever. The worm may be gnawing regret that men are not God, but we do know is that it never dies. And, if it never dies, then its victims never enter into the cultists' hoped-for peace of eternal oblivion. The worm torments condemned covenant breakers forever. This book is about earthly judgment. What is coming in eternity has been previewed on earth, blessings and cursings. The Great Tribulation was, not will be, an event in history that reflected in some small measure the horror of the future cursing to come. Compared to the lake of fire, the Great Tribulation was a brief, minor discomfort for a handful of people. Nevertheless, compared with God's conditional covenant blessings to His chosen people, the Jews, blessings that were revoked in 70 AD, the Great Tribulation was a world-changing catastrophe. This book is about that catastrophe. Equal Ultimacy, Blessing and Cursing God's judgments come in history, and also at the resurrection of the dead. This brings us to a fundamental doctrine of the Bible, one which in our day is rarely mentioned, even by pastors and theologians, especially by theologians. The equal ultimacy of blessings and cursings. In common language, this is sometimes expressed as the equal ultimacy of heaven and hell, but this phrase is incorrect. Heaven and hell are not the final standard, because they are incomplete places historically. People do not have their bodies in heaven and hell. They are reunited with their bodies at the last judgment. This means that people are resurrected from both heaven and hell. We have to conclude, then, that heaven is not yet perfect. For people do not possess their perfect resurrected bodies. It is yet incomplete. Also, in the days of John, they cried out for God to bring his judgment, another mark of incompleteness. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true? Dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Revelation 8.10 God's blessings in heaven are historically incomplete. Similarly, hell is a place of comparative grace. If we are comparing hell to the lake of fire. In hell, people do not possess perfect bodies to burn eternally, only souls. God's cursing on them is therefore limited. Furthermore, 
Jesus' story of the rich man who dies and goes to hell indicates that there is some sort of communication between those in hell and at least one person in heaven, Father Abraham. Luke 16, 23-31 God's cursings in hell are therefore historically incomplete. After the final judgment, there is no more limited, low-temperature, body-free hellfire. There is also no more communication with anyone in the kingdom of God. The last traces of grace in history are removed from the curse when hell, the devil, his angels, and resurrected non-Christians are all ceremoniously dumped into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.14. Just as the final absence of grace in history is removed from the saints when they depart from heaven and bodily enter the restored new heaven and new earth, at that point and forevermore, those in hell can think back to the comparative comforts of hell and correctly say of God, No more, Mr. Nice Guy. Neither Christians nor non-Christians like to think about such things. This does not make these future events less real or less inevitable. Equal ultimacy, unequal results. One possible source of confusion needs to be cleared up. I have said that blessing and cursing are equally ultimate. I am referring to covenantal ultimacy in judgment, not historical ultimacy. Good and evil are not equally powerful over time. God's blessings strengthen His covenant keepers, while His cursings weaken covenant breakers. God's promise to Eve of the covenant seed in Genesis 3.15 was more powerful than all of Satan's attempts to, to destroy the covenant line. Noah's ark was more powerful than the flood. The exodus was more powerful than Egyptian slavery. The resurrection of Christ was more powerful than the cross. The church became visibly more powerful than Israel after 70 AD. Christianity is more powerful in principle than humanism, and this will eventually be manifested in history. Long-term power comes from covenant-keeping, conformity to God's law through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Long-term impotence comes from covenant-breaking, disobedience to God's law through the empowering of Satan. See my book, Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress, Box 8000, Tyler, Texas, Institute for Christian Economics, 1987. Heaven and hell are equally ultimate as places. They are equally ultimate covenantally. Hell as a place of God's wrath is equally ultimate to heaven as a place of God's blessing. And both hell and heaven are limited by history. God makes his declaration of lost to those in hell, just as he declares saved to those in heaven. Hell is no real, no less real than heaven. It is simply impotent compared to heaven. Death is equally ultimate to life covenantally. In fact, life and death are primarily covenantal concepts, not physical concepts, as we shall see. They exist in relation to God's covenant. Life and death must always be defined in terms of God's five-point covenant structure, a structure described best in Ray Sutton's book, That You May Prosper, Dominion by Covenant. Box 8000, Tyler, Texas, Institute for Christian Economics, 1987. The transcendence, yet also presence of God. Number two, the hierarchy of God's creation. Number three, the law of God. Number four, the judgment, sanctions of God. And number five, the inheritance or disinheritance of God. 
Heaven and hell are limited by time and by their relation to events on earth. The two post-resurrection worlds will not be limited by time. God's grace will shine forth perfectly in one place, and His wrath will shine forth perfectly in the other. There is no escape from God in history. Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Psalm 139, 7-8 How much more is God present in eternal judgment, in both the place of unrestrained blessing and the place of unrestrained cursing? The presence of God is the eternal. Hence, once created, human beings are creatures of endless future duration. Many people will wish they, were, they weren't everlasting. For those in the lake of fire, endless duration is the opposite of eternal life. It is the eternal second death. The Bible speaks here of God's presence in the sense of knowing, and observing all things, determining all things. It is not speaking of His presence in the sense of ethical presence, showing grace, common grace or saving grace to people. That kind of presence will not exist in the lake of fire. The residents of the lake of fire are separated from God eternally, not in the sense that men can escape God's presence, but in the sense that they cannot pray to God, seek God's face, or expect God's mercy. He is present with them in some sense, as He was present in the burning bush, as a consuming fire. He is present in some sense as the worm that never dies. It is not Satan or a fallen angel that serves as the worm, for they are equally impotent, equally under the curse. He is present because God is omnipresent, present everywhere. This very presence as the judge is the ultimate curse of God. No ethical presence with people as the Savior and source of grace. They spend eternity in the presence of God's wrath, not God's grace. The key issue here, as always, is ethics. Life is a function of covenantal ethics, not duration as such. So is death. Life is a gift of God's grace, an unmitigated blessing. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3.36 Covenant breakers have existence on earth, but not life. They shall not see life, meaning covenantal life, Jesus said. They will have the same existence in the lake of fire. They shall not see life. Life is ethical, not simply a function of physical perception. Those in ethical rebellion against God are ethically dead. They do not possess life. It is the devil's own lie that mere physical perception is life, and that physical death is the end of life. It is also his lie that physically dead men will not have perception, especially the perception of incomparable, inconceivable pain. In non-physical hell and also in the eternally physical lake of fire, dead men will have perception, what they would give not to have it. Nothing, in this case, would be so much better than something except the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary as your lawful substitute in the eyes of God. Entertain no false hope of a world of nothing beyond the grave. Sinners deserve a lot more than nothing. Taking Christ's suffering seriously Because people seldom consider the eternal reality of the lake of fire, they do not fully understand or take seriously the cosmic and eternal implications of the sufferings of the Son of God at Calvary. A big deal, yes, but not that big a deal, they think to themselves. They do not take God's law seriously. They do not take God's eternal judgment seriously. 
This, of course, is precisely what sin is all, is all about, not taking God seriously. What of those who refuse to accept Christ's sacrificial work as their substitute? Their fate is the same as those in the Old Testament era who refused during their life on earth to accept the representative roasting of animals on God's altar. Remember, there are no bulls and goats to take their place. They themselves will replace the bulls and goats on God's eternal altar. Not yet. They are enjoying, compared to what is in store for them after the final judgment, a brief respite in hell. After the final judgment, things will at last and forever get really hot for them, body and soul, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. They will look back fondly as at hell as a place of God's restrained cursing. Hell will be thought of as a place of comparative rest and recreation. The Soviet Union's Gulag concentration camp system will be remembered by its covenant-breaking victims as a positive paradise. There is no purgatory for sinners. Nothing purges the consequences of sin after the sinner has died. Hell is the sinner's only purgatory in the sense of a place of temporarily restricted cursing. Hell's function is comparable to that of a prison in a biblical commonwealth. A holding place until the final sentence is handed down. It is better there than in the courtroom of the judge, and surely better than in the place of execution, eternal execution. The Salt of God's Covenant Salt is symbolic of judgment in the Bible. Remember, judgment is twofold, blessing and cursing. Therefore, salt is for both blessing and cursing. We know from the language of the New Testament that salt is a blessing, for Christians are described as salt. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost its saltiness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Mark 9.50 Again, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Matthew 5.13 Obviously, Salt does not lose its savor, but it can be mixed with other substances and become tasteless or bitter. This is what sin does to something good. When good men become corrupt, they are fit for cursing in history, to be trodden underfoot. They have become good for nothing. What about cursing? The first example is Lot's wife. She looked back toward the plain where Sodom and Gomorrah were being subjected to God's fiery judgment. God turned her into a pillar of salt. Genesis 19.26 Why salt? Because in God's sacrificial system, salt always accompanies judgment. And every oblation of thy meat offering shall thou season with salt. Neither shall thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Leviticus 2.13 Here we find the phrase, the salt of the covenant of thy God. God, in a sense, flavors his covenantal judgments with salt. Salt is good. It is a blessing. Covenant keepers are the salt of the earth in history. But if we mix our salt with corruption, as Lot's wife did, then we become covenantally dead salt, corrupted salt, and useless to God. Salt was a required aspect of God's sacrificial system. And on the second day thou shalt offer a kid of the goats without blemish for a sin offering. And they shall cleanse the altar as they did cleanse it with the bullock. When thou hast made an end of cleansing it, thou shalt offer a young bullock without blemish, and a ram out of thy flock without blemish. 
Thou shalt offer them before the Lord, and the priests shall cast salt upon them, and they shall offer them up for a burnt offering unto the Lord. Ezekiel 43, 22-24 There must always be salt on the altar. Christians are that salt. In their sin-free resurrected bodies, they will serve as the eternal salt for God's eternal altar. There will always be a sacrifice on the altar, just as surely as there will always be a church, God's holy salt. And that fiery altar judgment will burn for as long as the church shall exist. There can be no acceptable sacrifices without salt. God will not tolerate salt-free sacrifices. He will preserve his church, for he will always preserve his altar. His law is perpetual. His justice is perpetual, and his judgment is everlasting, both blessings and cursings. Salt is also used as a destroyer in history. It not only adds flavor, it also kills, and kills forever. It was used in the ancient world as a means of destroying an enemy city, for salting over a city's agricultural area destroyed its future productivity. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day, and slew the people that was therein, and beat down the city, and sowed it with salt. Judges 9.45 God salted over Sodom and Gomorrah, and later other cities. Why? To preserve his covenant. Chilton reproduces this passage in its entirety, in the Days of Vengeance, in relation to the temple's sacrifices. He does so in his introductory remarks to the book section on God's covenant sanctions, page 226. And the Lord shall separate him unto evil out of all the tribes of Israel, according to all the curses of the covenant that are written in this book of the law. So the generation to come of your children shall rise up after you, and the stranger that shall come from a far land shall say, When they see the plagues of that land, and the sickness which the Lord hath laid upon it, and the whole land thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that it is not sown, nor beareth, nor any grass groweth therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and in his wrath. Even all nations shall say, Wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto this land? What meaneth the heat of this great anger? Then men shall say, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord God of their fathers, which he made with them when he brought them forth out of the land of Egypt. For they went and served other gods and worshipped them, gods whom they knew not and whom he had not given unto them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land to bring upon it all the curses that are written in this book, Deuteronomy 29, 21-27. The phrases of cursing are temperature-oriented. The whole land, therefore, is brimstone and salt and burning. The heat of this great anger, the anger of the Lord was kindled against this land. It is totally misleading to speak of God's judgments in history apart from the language of fire. But it is also misleading to speak of God's judgmental fire without salt. Salt is the savor of judgment. Thus, the presence of the church in history is a savor of judgment in history. God's covenant sanctions are twofold, blessing and cursing. What is true of God's covenant cursings in history is equally true of His covenant cursings in eternity. The lake of fire is the place where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For every one shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. The new heaven and the new earth is as assured of its eternal status as the lake of fire is, and vice versa. God's covenant sanctions never end. Covenantal Death and the Baptism of Fire Death is a covenantal phenomenon. 
God told Adam that he would die on that day that he ate of the forbidden fruit. Adam ate and died. He died covenantally. God's covenant sanctions of cursing were placed on him. He did not die physically, a sign of God's grace to him in history, although his body definitively died that day. It bore marks of the curse, sweat on the brow, Genesis 3.19. The same mark of the curse was not allowed for the high priest, which is why he was required to wear the mitre on his head. and was also required to wear linen, Exodus 29.38-43. We are specifically told in Ezekiel's vision that the high priest was required to wear linen in order to avoid sweating, Ezekiel 44.18. Adam's body progressively died through the aging process for over nine centuries, then it finally died. Genesis 5, 5. He could not escape God's covenant sanction of cursing. This physical death is only the first death. There is a second death, the post-resurrection death after the final judgment, Revelation 20, 14. Why is this second death required? Because covenant breaking, if it is persisted in, in until the day of the first death, becomes a permanent condition. The covenant of God is eternal. Therefore, one's position and condition as a covenant breaker or a covenant keeper becomes permanent at the death of the pre-resurrection body. If people could escape their position as covenant breakers in eternity through any means, including annihilation, they could therefore eliminate the permanence of God's covenant sanctions. God does not permit such an attack on His sovereignty in time and eternity. His sanctions never end, for His covenant never ends. Klein's Exposition of the Ritual Sanctions these covenant sanctions are twofold sanctions, cursings and blessings. This twofold nature of the covenant sanctions is spelled out in great detail by Meredith G. Klein in his book, By Oath Consigned, Erdman's, 1968. Klein refers to John the Baptizer's summary of Christ's ministry. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Matthew 3.11 What did John have in mind? Baptizing with fire? Klein cites Malachi 4.1 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts. It shall leave them neither root nor branch. Stubble cannot grow. It cannot send roots into the soil for nourishment, not grow leaves on branches to absorb sunlight. Without root and branches, stubble dies, dries, and is easily set afire. But there is another source of light than the burning of stubble, as Malachi 4, 2-3 says, But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under your feet in the, that day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. What are Malachi's next words? A call to remember God's covenant law. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Verse 4. Then is promised John's own ministry. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse 5. Klein comments, For evildoers, the fire of that day is the burning of an oven to consume them. But for those who fear God's name, it is the healing rays of the sun to refine them. Page 58. 
John's baptism was not an ordinance to be observed by Israel in their generations, but a special sign for that terminal generation, epitomizing the particular crisis in covenant history, represented by the mission of John as messenger of the Lord's ultimatum. Page 61. Viewed from a more comprehensive vantage point, John's baptism was a sign of the ordeal through which Israel must pass to receive a judgment of either curse or blessing. By his message and baptism, John thus proclaimed again to the seed of Abraham the meaning of their circumcision. Circumcision was no guarantee of inviolable privilege. It was a sign of the divine ordeal in which the axe, laid unto the roots of the unfruitful trees cursed by Messiah, would cut them off. Matthew 3.10 and Luke 3.9 John's baptism was in effect a recircumcising. Page 62 Klein concludes, Baptism, then, is concerned with man in the presence of God's judgment throne. Page 67. Baptism is a covenant sign, and it bears the mark of the twofold nature of covenant sanctions, blessings, and cursings. This system of dual covenant sanctions will be manifested at the final judgment. Again, when the Lord appears in the final ordeal, theophany, as the judge of the quick, living, and the dead, taking fiery vengeance on them that obey not the gospel, he will bring before his judgment throne all who have been within his church of the new covenant. There his declaration of the curse of the covenant will fall on the ears of some who in this world have been with that, within the community that formerly owns his covenant lordship, so that still in that day they think to cry, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? There is, therefore, a fulfillment of the covenant leadership of Christ over his New Testament church into condemnation and death as well as unto justification and life. In the execution of both verdicts, whether unto life or unto death, the new covenant will be enforced and perfected. Page 77-78 Permanent Sanctions The new covenant is enforced and perfected in God's final judgment. That future judgment is as permanent as the covenant itself. The sanctions of blessings and cursing are everlasting. The terminal generation of Israel did not understand the threat to them. They ignored John's baptism. They did not take baptism seriously as a permanent, eternal, covenant sign. They did not heed John's warning of the supreme ability of the one who followed him to impose the baptism of permanent, consuming fire. Thus, when they crucified Christ, they sealed their fate. The day of the Lord came in 70 AD and visibly destroyed the temple and its animal sacrifices. The final day of the Lord will come and institute the only sacrifice that in principle God ever honored, true, complete, and permanent judgment. Is God's blessing ultimate? Yes. The resurrection of the blemish-free bodies of saints to be merged with their souls newly released from heaven, and their post-judgment transferred to their new permanent environment, the perfect new heaven and new earth. Is God's cursing ultimate? Yes. The resurrection the blemish-free bodies of dead sinners to be merged with their souls newly released from hell and their post-judgment transferred to their new permanent environment, the lake of fire. God curses them with perfect resurrected bodies to serve as eternal stubble, that they may endure eternal agony in the lake of fire. Covenantal death is permanent after the death of the body. Covenantal death is as permanent as the covenant itself. Therefore, if an eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, 
For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good. But if the salt have lost its saltiness, wherewith will ye season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. Mark nine forty seven through 50 Those who argue for anything other than the eternal judgment have adopted what philosophers call nominalism. Hell is just a name, not a real place. Or the lake of fire is simply symbolic language, not a real place. This is what modern theological liberalism argues. So did the cults with their doctrine of annihilationism. But hell and the lake of fire are real places, for they play eternal roles in God's covenant. They are covenantal realities, not verbal symbols of God's wrath. A wrath without wrath. Hell is as real as heaven. The lake of fire is as real as the post-resurrection new heaven and new earth. They are so real that they have manifestations in history. Heaven and Hell on Earth Chilton's Days of Vengeance has a chapter titled All Hell Breaks Loose. On page 257, he cites Herbert Schlossberg's Idols for Destruction, Thomas Nelson, 1983. When a civilization turns idolatrous, its people are profoundly changed by that experience. In a kind of reverse sanctification, the idolater is transformed into the likeness of the object of his worship. Israel went after worthlessness and became worthless, Jeremiah 2.5. This is a brilliant observation, but Schlossberg stops short of the goal. This is not a kind of reverse sanctification. This is reverse sanctification. Covenant keepers progressively work out the implications of their faith in history, manifesting the heavenly kingdom of God in time and on earth. God progressively answers the required prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10 This is progressive sanctification, the working out in history of the perfect moral righteousness of Christ's perfect humanity, not his divinity, that God imputes to Christians at the point of their salvation. What God imputes to us definitively, in principle, at the point of our conversion to Christ, the mind and righteousness of Jesus Christ, we are to manifest progressively over time. Schlossberg's point is that Satan's followers manifest a parallel process of sanctification. To sanctify means to set apart. Satan sets his followers apart in the same way that God does. They are to work out in history the evil covenant principles of Satan's hellish kingdom, just as Christians are to work out in history the righteous covenant principles of God's heavenly kingdom. There is a constant complaint by those who hold eschatologies of earthly defeat that it is foolish to work for the establishment of God's law on earth. They call such a view utopian. They deny that there can ever be a widespread manifestation of God's kingdom on earth in history. They dismiss such a vision as totally false, looking for heaven on earth, yet to refuse to work to bring heaven on earth by teaching people to obey heaven's righteous principles on earth is to turn history over to the devil. His disciples are working hard to bring hell on earth by teaching people to obey hell's rebellious principles on earth. There is a war going on. It is a war between God and Satan, righteousness and evil, covenant keepers and covenant breakers, heaven and hell. This war is going on in history. It is an earthly war primarily. The ultimate issue over which the war is being fought is the issue of sovereignty. Who is sovereign? 
God or Satan. The historical issue is also being fought over the issue of sovereignty. Whose human forces will triumph in history? God's or Satan's? Whose new world order will be victorious in history? Christ's or Satan's? In short, the war is being fought over this question. Heaven on earth or or hell on earth? There is no possibility of any other kingdom on earth. There is no possibility of neutral man's kingdom on earth, operated by hypothetical neutral natural law. Men are never neutral, and there is no such thing as natural law. There is God's law, and there are Satan's numerous alternatives, including neutral natural law. There is no neutrality. Therefore, we face the question, will it be heaven on earth or hell on earth? Will it be God's covenant law as the law of nations, or one or more of Satan's counterfeit law systems? Any attempt to substitute a third choice, such as natural law, is simply another attempt to replace God's covenant law with Satan's. It is simply another attempt to build hell on earth. Sadly, pessimistic Christians who expect little but defeat for God's people cling to faith in natural law as a neutral, common ground between Satan's supposedly expanding influence in history and the church's expanding supposedly decreasing influence they see god's bible revealed law as a threat to their retreat from historic responsibility so they choose to preach an undefined and always undefinable neutral natural law which lays no uniquely christian civic responsibilities on them conclusion The judgment of God on Israel in 70 A.D. should persuade us of the futility of escaping God's progressive judgments in history. In our day, potentially the greatest blessings since Pentecost are facing us. Worldwide revival. The information revolution of computerization and a rediscovery of God's revealed law as a tool of godly dominion. Genesis 1, 26-28. In our day, Also, potentially, the worst curses since the fall of Jerusalem are facing us. The AIDS plague, the triumph of the two communist empires, or the destruction of the United States and the freedom of the West, within 30 minutes after a Soviet nuclear first strike. We need to understand God's judgment. It involves blessing and cursing. God's blessing is definitive, the grace of salvation in Christ. His blessings are also progressive, promise of the coming seed, Genesis 3.15 and his provision of clothing for them, Noah's Ark, the exodus from Egypt, the return to the land under Nehemiah and Ezra, the resurrection of Christ, and the expansion of the Church of God. God's blessing is also final and eternal, the sin-free culmination of the post-resurrection new heaven and new earth. God's curse is definitive. The death of mankind, his curses are also progressive. The cursing of Adam and Eve and their environment casting them out of the garden, the flood, slavery in Egypt, captivity in Assyria and Babylon, the death of Christ on the cross, and the fall of Jerusalem. God's cursing is also final and eternal, the lake of fire. As the Westminster Confession of Faith 1646 puts it, regarding eternal blessing and eternal cursing, beginning at Judgment Day, the end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of His mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect, and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate, who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life, and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing, 
which shall come from the presence of the Lord, but the wicked, who know not God, and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ, shall be cast into eternal torments, and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Chapter 33, Section 2 Everlasting joy or everlasting torment, we must preach the equal ultimacy of blessing and cursing in eternity. To refuse to do so is to abandon biblical covenant theology. It is to fudge Orthodox Christianity. Let Israel's experience in 70 AD be our guide to the importance of faithfulness to God's revealed word. If we are so careless and arrogant as to deny the eternal reality of God's cursings, we risk having to experience them firsthand. Learning by doing is not what you want in this lesson in theology. This audio version of The Great Tribulation by David Chilton has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Jason Sanchez. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF and visit ReconstructionistRadio.com for more free audiobooks. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.